I'm Jason Sylvia, and this is The Creative Capital Show. A show about creative people and how those creative people turn into entrepreneurs by taking their creativity and turning it into a business and facing all the trials and tribulations along the way. What happens to a dream deferred? Well, if you're Kyle Therian, the answer is a lot. Kyle is a producer, engineer, musician, and last but certainly not least, owner and founder of Railroad Park Recording Company. Kyle in his early days developed a love for the grind and the journey rather than the destination. And that journey took him to some pretty interesting places. In this episode, Kyle talks about starting a band being a roadie, going on the road in your teens, being signed to an indie label in the UK, getting on the Warp Tour, hustling music and merch, performing market research through MySpace, the digital revolution within the music industry, and finally, what happens when you sacrifice your life for a dream, and that dream doesn't turn out the way you planned. And it all started with finessing the public education system. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome to the show. Thank Dude. you for coming on. Uh, the pleasure is all mine, Jason. Been, I'm excited. It's been it's been a it's it's been a long time coming. We were talking about this for a while, and yeah. now you finally got some time some time out out of the studio where you can actually sit down and have this conversation. So I'm excited because um, this is this is some subjects near and dear to my heart as far as like music, audio production, yeah. and things like that. But for those who are listening, hopefully I've got listeners outside of Rhode Island. Not to say I don't. I'm not hating on the fact that I've got a ton of listeners in Rhode Island and Providence. I love all of you. But if this ever blows up, or listeners in Massachusetts, or listeners outside of Massachusetts, or just anywhere in the world that are listening to this, who are you? Brief description and just what exactly is it that you do? Yes. Yeah, so um, I am a musician, and I am an engineer and a producer, and uh, I'd like to call myself an entrepreneur as well or business owner. Um, those are kind of the hats that I wear. And I'm not going to lie, I'm a, I was a little nervous about um, about coming on because I one thing I, I have learned about you is you have an extensive knowledge of things in regards to, to film and pop culture and music. Um, and I was a little intimidated because the way my life is, uh, and the way my life's been going for the last three years is I've, I've essentially been in sort of a bubble. And everything, I mean, I've been working 12 hours a day at least every single day for the last three years, building a brand, building a building a business, and also being an artist that I feel like I've been in a vacuum. So I, I feel like I kind of missed out on on a lot of 
a, a lot of things that have happened in regards to film and pop culture and all this stuff. So I, I was a little intimidated because I was like, man, Jason could run circles around me Well, that, in a conversation. I, I appreciate <laughs> that, but that ability, at least right now, is not paying me money. So if you want to switch, hey, I'm, I'm down. <laughs> um, but by the way, uh, what is that brand and that thing you've been building? Just real quick. We'll get into it later, but what yeah. is the name of that just so people know? Yeah, so currently my life's work is a business called Railroad Park Recording Company. Um, and it's based in Massachusetts, Southern Massachusetts, right over the Rhode Island border line. Um, and yeah, it is primarily a recording studio, but also a brand and also a, a lifestyle or a lifestyle brand, if you will. Um, and hopefully, um, sooner rather than later, a label, um, a, or at least some type of mechanism that can really help artists. And I like to think that we are helping a lot of local artists right now, but I mean, my, I'm crazy and my goals are nothing short of world domination. So, um, I, I am, I am hoping to sort of from a, a small, a beach town in, in Southern Massachusetts, sort of like, I don't know, flip the music industry on its back again, or, or do some really big shit, you know? So with that being said, I think it's a perfect segue. So this, um, world domination, uh, aspect. Would that mean like you're an evil genius? Because the first question I got is you graduated high school a year early. Dude, yes. Uh, I graduated high school a year early and that was in the middle of my history of tricking schools because I, I tricked my elementary <laughs> school and I graduated elementary school a year early and then I went and tricked my high school and graduated high school a year early. I, well, the high school one I knew about, the grade school one, how did you, how did you pull off the grade school graduating early? You're just like, let me take this cognitive <laughs> test. I'm a genius. Or like, were your parents like, he's a genius. Just let no, him test No, no, no. So I, I'm, uh, I am very, I'm a very interesting cat. Cause like. Hence why you're on the show. <laughs> um, and I don't have any problem admitting that. I'm not trying to sound arrogant, but like, you know. We get to it. You get to You get to a certain age. We really start to reflect on. You really get to reflect on some of the choices that you've made growing up and how how it's panned out versus what society and your parents told you was what you were supposed to do. And, and mine have all been wrong. <laughs> well, elementary school. Uh, funny enough, I actually got expelled. Uh, I got expelled because uh, I was at the bus stop and and I had like one of those neighborhoods, you know, where where. There was a lot of kids in the neighborhood, and we were playing hockey and manhunt, and like this was before smartphones and and all that. So we were a pretty tight knit kind of group of like knuckleheads in the neighborhood. And anyway, uh, somebody gave me some marijuana. This is also prior to the legalization and uh, and uh, and all that. So somebody gave me some marijuana, and I I did what any young uh, potential entrepreneur would do, and I brought it to school and sold it. Uh, immediately. So uh, the entrepreneurial prowess was early. It was early. <laughs> yes. you, you already had that. You already yes. had that going. Uh, so I sold it. And of course, that kid got caught and he ratted me out. And so I was expelled. I was probably the first person to ever get expelled because they, they like really made a uh, example of me. Anyway, I got expelled. But I, as a kid, I, I was... I was never inter I was pretty punk rock and I never was interested in doing anything people told me to do. So school, homework, I, I brushed by with like B's and C's and D's just so just did the bare minimum to get through it because I didn't want to be there. But I wasn't a, a dumb kid by any means. Like I had forged 
relationships with all my teachers, like great relationships with all my teachers. And, and, and all, the te- all the teachers would always say that like, although I didn't always show up and although I didn't do my work and respect my tasks, I was always polite and non-interruptive. And I, so I forged great relationships with my teachers. And one of my math teachers was like, hey, you're a good kid and you just got mixed up in something silly. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually have been in the process of setting up this tutoring program and I'm going to kind of guinea pig you into it because now you, you, you basically have to go to a different elementary school for your last year of school, of schooling. And basically was like, I'm going to propose this idea. He came and he sat with my parents. He, he sat with the superintendent and he developed this program based around, I guess, me getting expelled where he liked me. I was a great kid. We had great conversations and all the time, me and this, this great teacher. And so he set it up so that my senior year of, well, not my senior year, but my eighth grade year, the last year of elementary school, I basically went to school for three hours a day at UMass Dartmouth and got tutored by like two babe college students for for a max of three hours a day so i got expelled from this school that required me to wake up at seven in the morning and be there for eight hours uh and basically got put into a program where i went to school for three hours a day where me and these college kids would just laugh and have a great time and just talk about whatever and then i tested out and I really do feel like it was hacking the elementary school problem, the system, because I literally woke up at noon and went to school till 3 p.m. Did this person already have that program in mind and then just kind of needed like a use case and then you came on as I like think so. perfect yeah. or, or did they come up with it? It like- started as a tutoring program, like an after school type thing. And I think the teacher wanted to develop it into sort of a... So it was already happening, but they wanted to scale it up and mm-hmm. then they needed like a proof of concept and then you came on exactly. and you became the proof of concept. Yes. Basically like, hey, I need a way to show that this works. Oh, hey, look, look, look here we go. Yeah. Um, so I, I skipped out on a whole bunch of like testing and all these types of responsibilities that you have as a young adult, finalizing your elementary school experience. And then I, I, was, I was legally not allowed on the property um, because I was selling drugs, apparently. So, and then fast forward to high school, that was a real... That was a real hack for sure. I mean, elementary school, that was, that was my elementary school hack, but high school was a huge hack. Um, and to make a long story short, basically, same, same sort of thing, forged great relationships with my teachers because I'm a kind person and, uh, um, and flew by the seat of my pants with, with C's and D's and B's. And then basically it, was, it came down to P.E. I didn't participate. I was uh, I was like chilling in the bleachers with the girls every PE like didn't even change, and it caught up to me and it just it just so happened to create this perfect storm sort of situation where I was like short a few credits to to graduate high school um, going and, and this was before senior year whatever what is it junior year that's before that I uh, never remember it's junior then senior okay so yeah junior year and so I. Basically, because I kind of like didn't really do anything in, in PE, I basically wasn't going to pass high school and I was going to have to stay back, which is like when you're that age, that is like socially, that's social suicide, right? Like you're having to stay back and, and, and be in another, and be. It's like, dude, just let me run a mile or some shit and then like. Call <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, so anyway, I was on my way to the guidance counselor's office to discuss my situation with the guidance counselor and I get to the office and the secretary's like, he's got a couple people in there just sit. And then the, 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 
the guidance counselor came out, oh, hey, Kyle, I was going to be a couple minutes here. While you're sat here, why don't you fill out these uh, scholarships? Because it was all about scholarships going, in, you know, as junior year's wrapping up. Um, and I'm like, yeah, sure, grab a pen. I just start filling out these scholarships for, just to pass the time. And then finally he calls me into his office. I go sit into his office. And he goes, oh, I'll take those applications. And he, the, top, the, the one that was on the top of the stack, he goes, oh, oh, you're interested in going to, to NEIT? And I'm like, sure. And he goes, oh, well, they have a program where we get to choose two students from the high school every year that get to spend their senior year of high school in college. I wish I, my high school had that program. Holy crap. Yeah. So you would, you would basically, I went for my freshman year of college and I took like two additional classes, an English and a math to get the credits that I needed to graduate senior, senior year. But essentially that after after my junior year was finished, everybody went into their senior year of high school, and I went to my freshman year of college. Not only did I go to my freshman year of college and get to skip out on my spending my senior year in a public school, but I also didn't have to take SATs. I didn't have to get to take SATs because I filled out this scholarship. So I didn't have to do final projects, SATs. A lot of my teachers were actually quite upset because I got to like really just peace out. And I'm getting college credits. I'm in my first year of college. So everybody gets out senior year and goes into their freshman year of college. And had I gone back, I'd be getting my bachelor's. So quick segue from all of that. And how, it all started because I was failing out of, <laughs> out of high school. How, how lucky do you think you were because that you had like teachers and people that did see you as like, oh, like, no, he's, he's a good kid. Cause not everybody gets that. Even if they try to like, yeah. you do that, not everybody gets that benefit of the doubt or like they do one thing and they get labeled a certain way, or if they're just in a school environment, whether it's grade school, high school or whatever have you, um, that's just not good. It's, it's negative or for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. So how important do you think it was that you had like teachers and adults and people that were like had your back and like were encouraging you rather than yeah. like, just labeling you something and being like that's it yeah well I, I do think to an extent a lot of life is sort of 50% hard work and 50% luck or the universe or whatever you want to call it um, I definitely recognize that I was dealt a good card uh, you know when I when I was was bo- was born essentially because really one one thing right off the rip that none of us can can control or have any say in is kind of where and what situation we're born into. So I was lucky enough to be born into uh, to a to a fantastic mother who um, I didn't really know my dad, but um, and, and and don't get me wrong, you know I wasn't I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth by any means, but I had a fantastic mother. And she was incredibly ambitious and incredibly smart. She went to school full-time, worked full-time, and was a mother full-time to me. And I had great-grandparents. So I I like to think that right off the rip, they kind of prepared me with the skills that enabled me to sort of hack through elementary and hack through high school. Because, like I said, teachers didn't dislike me, even though I didn't really achieve much in terms of school and, and, and schoolwork, but they, they loved me because I had, I had great conversations with, I just really connected with teachers because that's just the type of person that I am. Like I'm, 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 I like to think that I'm warm and, and, and kind, or at least try my best to be a, a good person. And so I don't know. I just, I guess my upbringing 
and my, my parents, my grandparents, and sort of the people that surrounded me when I was a young kid kind of instilled with me these, these sort of these skills, um, you know, to, to be kind. Or I don't know if it's a skill, really, but like whatever it is, to be kind and to be warm and to be a good person. And I think, you know, being kind and being warm and being a good person, um, it's done a lot for me. It's, it's been sort of, it's, 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 it's made it so that I do stumble upon these situations where it seems to be luck, you know? Were you an only child? I wasn't, I, well, I was an only child until I have, I have, a, I have a, a, a stepsister. She's, she's much younger than me though. So we, there's quite a gap between us. So most of my childhood was only, was, I was an only child. Same. So I'm just wondering if like, that might have something to do with it just because I feel like if you're an only child, like you have to, de- to develop like talking to and having conversations with adults. I feel a little bit quicker. Yeah. I don't know if there's, there's, I don't and think there's any scientific, enjoy your own company. Yeah. Scientific data behind it, but just from my own experiences, like as you were saying that, I'm like, I wonder if he was an only child just because that would, that would add up a little bit because then you have to be able makes to talk sense. to adults because it, it, yeah, it makes you, sense. There's, that's, there's you and the adults in the room and that's it. Yeah. You know? I never, I've never thought about that, but that is a great point. And I think one thing you learn as being an only child is like really enjoying your own, your own company. And I actually think that that's really helpful in navigating life because I do feel like a lot of my friends growing up, they, um, they sort of, they sort of were hungry for or, or thirsty for other people's attention and other people's time. And, and I feel like they got themselves in some silly situations quite often because they were so heavily influenced by other people. And I think if you really enjoy your own company, like, I don't know if you're this type of person, but I am the type of person that could, like, go for a walk by myself or spend an entire day by myself and absolutely love it. I truly do enjoy my own company. So, like... I could do that, but I need people around sometimes just to, like, either affirm certain things or it's just, like, kind of bored. Like, I need... Yeah, I need, I'm, I need, I'm very I need introverted. Bounce, I need to bounce... All, like ideas off people so so there we go we just figured out something else if you're an only <laughs> child it doesn't necessarily mean you're introverted or extroverted it could go either way <laughs> either way ladies and gentlemen um so they're break breaking through the nature or nurture argument unintentionally <laughs> on the fucking show we're like start calling up the side screw screw the medical scientists like we know what we're talking about um anyway don't, please don't do that that's that's not a good idea going along with the high school thing you graduated early went to new england tech but something else i noticed is that um, as I'm doing my research for the show, I'm starting to find out more and more as I do this show that like in an episode that has yet to premiere yet, but somebody said like, dude, what are you, the feds? Like, cause like I would bring up stuff and they're like, how did you know that? <laughs> I take that as a compliment. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, one thing I did notice is that in high school you're doing video editing, editing on, uh, with Cubase, which for those that don't know, that was, um, one of the early, I think it's still around, uh, DAWs, digital audio workstations, mm-hmm. like yeah. computer recording software. It's still around. It's still great. Okay. So I just didn't know if it was still around or not, or if it changed its name or something. In high school, you're doing that. Was that happening more from your, as we know from grade school, you're not, you know, you have an entrepreneurial spirit. So was that more of an entrepreneurial spirit thing? Was that more of a punk rock ethos, punk rock mindset thing of like DIY? Or was it, you know, um, some, you're at grade school and high school and things like that. Those are like your formative years. Was it more of, um, and please talk about this too, like your musical influences because you were playing like in the schools, like, you know, classical band and things like that. You were probably playing in your own band or at least in the early formations of it as well. So what influence do you wanting to do like video and audio editing? Was it entrepreneurial? Was it 
you know, DIY, like kind of punk rock attitude? Was it because you were doing music already? And if it was because you were doing music, was it because of like the things that you were like listening to? Yeah. So, um, basically I, I was like your typical kid, like into sports, um, when I was really young and punk rock sort of ruined that for me as I bought it. I started listening to like green day and, uh, I got a guitar and my closest friends, same thing. And we decided that we wanted to start a band before we even knew how to play instruments. We like literally assigned like, he was like, I want to play bass cause it seems the easiest. And I was like, fine, that means I'm a guitar player. We actually, um, in as far back as middle school, we were collecting, we were, we would go around the lunch tables with it, with a hat, like collecting tips so that we could raise money to buy gear so that we could start a band. Did it, was it like that sitcom trope where you book a gig, but none of you know how to play a damn song? Abs- it's exactly what it was. Oh, please tell me about that, because that sounds amazing. But yeah. like, I always see that in a sitcom where like the main character and his friends decide to start a band, and they do everything <laughs> besides learning how to play the damn instruments. It was very much that. I mean, we were, we were just like, me and my, my closest friend, my best friend, really, we were so into like Blink-182 and into punk and, and from from Blink-182 we would like watch interviews of, of Blink-182 and like whatever shirts they were wearing we would check those bands out so it'd be like the Get Up Kids and like we, we quickly became into Warp Tour and uh, punk rock and we sort of developed that punk rock mentality which is perfect we're angsty young kids but um, I was pretty popular in school you know what I mean uh, when I was younger I got along with everybody uh, kind of same same thing got along with my teachers really well and so kids were really um, they were like oh you're starting a band that's so cool here's the rest of my lunch money like go for it and we raised a bunch of money we got a bunch of gear and we played the talent show in middle school and it must have been god awful but like luckily we were popular enough and the only kids with guitars like playing band music um that people are like, oh, wow, they're doing the thing. So I end up, we end up making the talent show. I didn't get to play it because I had got expelled, um, whatever. But then going into high school, I, I did my first tour at 16 years old. And what happened was that, that evolved. We, 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 even though we sucked, we, we pushed really hard to learn how to play our instruments and to learn how to write music and then go, going into high school. And what was the name of that, that, that band? Oh, man. You're going to do that to me. All right. It was called Another Option, which is a terrible name, but we were kids. Um, and it was pretty... I've, I've heard a lot worse, so don't worry about it. <laughs> We were pretty popular in school. Like, there's some band ri- rivalries and, ev- and everything, but we started setting up shows. Uh, we started playing shows. The drummer of our band's mom had a minivan, st- was driving us to shows. We were the youngest kids at the shows. And I did my first tour at 16 because I got my first car. And we had been setting up these local shows for touring bands because what happened is, you know, back then there was always bands coming through the area. Shows were getting canceled on them. They were looking for shows last second. So even as a young kid, MySpace is starting to pop and bands are on MySpace and they're networking with other bands. And basically we had like a Grange Hall in town and the high school and we would set up shows at VFWs and, and whatnot. And we would we would host these touring bands who were you know, maybe not even up and coming, but they were touring. Um, because back then, this was before iTunes and Spotify and streaming, you know, the really the only way to, to, to climb the ranks and become sort of a full-time musician or famous, if you will, was to kind of like be, have a rigorous touring schedule and to be like literally out in the world touring. So when I got my first car, I'd, we'd already forged these relationships with, with these touring bands. And one of the, well, there was a band from New Hampshire and they were like, hey, uh, a 
would you like to go on tour with us? And we were like, yeah, like, how do we make this work? And we set it up so that basically they already had a tour booked. And they were like, whatever, we'll just have you guys go on and do a 20-minute set with our gear before we play. Because basically in my Chevy Malibu, my first car, we followed their van and trailer. And we used their gear. So we had a Chevy Malibu with our guitars and stuff in the trunk. And we would follow this band to the gigs. We would, set, we would help them set up. And we would play 20 minutes worth of music before they went on for their set. And here we are, 16-year-old kids, playing all across the Midwest, uh, Chicago, and, and all that stuff. That was my first. So I know you, you graduated high school, but like, how did the other kids in the band get to do that? And like it was a summer. It was, was a summer. Oh, thing. <laughs> also, like, how did you present that to the parents? Or like, were there ever yeah. any? Or were there ever, like that? I want to hear about like how did you convince that? And then also, were there ever any, any venues? Because I know like there are certain venues that are like eighteen plus or twenty one plus. Like, yeah. Were well, there we were any ever some crazy? Venues. I was gonna say, were there ever any venues that they're like, dude, you're not getting in. I don't care if you're with the band. Like, this is a uh, eighteen plus or twenty one. Like, how did you skirt around that? So I remember the first the first gig was in Pennsylvania. It was a coffee shop, and in this this fucking buttfuck town in the middle of Pennsylvania. Um, It was a a town called Montrose, and it was a coffee shop. So they were serving alcohol, and it was all kids. But the most amazing thing is, here it is. This is our first show out of state, essentially. And um, we're in Pennsylvania, and we're like, oh, this is cool. And we played, and we were lucky. We were lucky because, A, there was hundreds of kids there in this town. They had nothing better to do, you know? Um, And B... These kids were here for it. Like, they were like, whoa, these guys are from Massachusetts. Like, whoa. And like, we played and these kids went crazy. And immediately I was in love with touring and playing music. Like, we played, these kids went crazy. They were moshing, they were crowd surfing, they were buying all of our merch. And like, the first night we were making money. And I was just like, man, I'm in love with this. And then the second gig, we played at a place called Suds and More. It was in Ohio. I don't know if it was in Cleveland or Columbus or somewhere in Ohio. I remember it sounds being like the, city. the best slash worst car wash Dude, ever. Suds and More was a venue on one side and a laundromat on the other side, but not 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 like disconnected with a wall or anything. Like it was literally we're playing to a crowd of kids, and behind those kids are washing machines and and people washing their clothes. I feel like somebody needs to now make that a speakeasy bar like you have to like open up like the dryer <laughs> but you have to open up the right one and like crawl through and that's, how you, that's how you get to the bar like it's an actual you're in a boutique lawn. sneaker shop yeah right? yeah like like, like, like like bodega like yeah, like yeah. literally like you have to go through this laundromat but like it's just a regular laundromat and then you have to like pick the exact right dryer and then you have to like crawl through it or you have to like hit something on like the little keypad for it and then it opens a door. <laughs> anyway, sorry, that just, there you go. We're giving out business ideas here. <laughs> Speakeasy bar or sneaker shop. I just want to mention that that gig was terrible. In fact, they wanted us to go on at two in the morning. Like everything, your quintessential like show gone wrong, promoter don't care. And the band that we were with, they actually took a shit in one of the washing machines. And that, like, right as we were leaving, he was that due to drunkenness or hatred for the gig? Nope, he was he was completely sober, but he was so mad that like the person promoting the show would put on these touring bands at like two in the morning. Which you're you're if you're a touring band that doesn't really have a, a following in Ohio, it's like what are we doing? A here? lot of these shows were a lot of these shows were the the way they worked was it was local bands setting up gigs, throwing the touring artist in the middle, and and basically. And basically, giving the touring opportunity, uh, the touring bands, an opportunity to play in their town to their 
to their following. You know what I mean? So it was a beautiful sort of just a network of kids being good to kids. You know what I mean? Like, hey, there's a band coming from out of town. Let's put them right in the middle of the set so that the bands before we might catch some of their following, and then and then the the band after will catch some of their following. It was it was a great system, but the second show. They didn't get the memo, and we we were supposed. To, I think we didn't even perform. We were like, "Fuck this! We're not playing at two in the morning." I busked outside of a club and made seventy dollars, while the drummer of the band that was nice enough to take us on tour took a shit in the washing machine. I don't remember what the question was, or, or, or but no, no, you 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 answered, <laughs> but it also. So correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like you broke into the industry in in the way of basically you found another band that was further along, and you're like, "Hey." Let us follow you, and mm-hmm. you'll get us as roadies mm-hmm. in exchange for us being roadies for you, and you don't have to set up your own stuff. Like, w- let us play twenty minutes and like yeah. get some of the. And cash. that band loved hanging out with us. We were like, really, we, we forged a great relationship. We were good friends, so they were happy to take us out. It meant that like all those hours spent hanging out in a in a parking lot somewhere, it was now with buddies. But you, but you offered it up basically, or like you and your band offered it up, and almost like. Almost like as like an unpaid internship, but you were yeah. getting paid. But you basically offered up like, "Hey, I, we have these resources; we can help you out." And I'm guessing you weren't expecting money or expecting anything. And then all of a no. sudden, they're like, "Hey, come yeah. on tour." Um, the site. So there you go, folks. Like how to break in the industry. It doesn't have to offer something up or offer services. I know I've heard Gary Vaynerchuk and others talk about this, but it doesn't necessarily have to be like this free that's a whole other thing i want to talk about too later on it doesn't have to be necessarily this unpaid internship thing like yeah like but it doesn't necessarily have to be money either it can be but it can be other things so that yeah. that's really interesting um but from there i i was i was so in love with touring that i would then spend the rest of my life till now making music and touring i'm just think you guys are lucky that you are also able to convince not like one but a multiple parents of multiple kids to be like yeah that's fine yeah like, go on a tour. <laughs> oh and it, and it took some convincing and whatnot but if there's one thing that i've learned you know on on that comment that you made about gary vanderchuk and and the hustle culture or like the idea is that you need to do these unpaid internships i think um i think in, in unpaid internships and putting in more work than you're being paid for is inevitable. But I think the, the, the really important thing is to kind of know when it's time to start making money. Um, and that and can be difficult. Your worth and not, and not, yeah. just, not just accepting somebody not paying you because you should get yeah. something out of it. But it's, even your, knowing your worth, in my opinion, isn't enough because I feel like there's a market and you, you have to be respectful of that market. And unfortunately, in the, in the music world especially, or, you know, in, in the music world especially, um, Sometimes, you know, it doesn't matter what you're worth. And sometimes you're just going to make less than what you're worth. And, you know, the, it, 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 I think balancing what's healthy, what's a healthy amount of that um, is, is important. And is, is there an exchange of energy? Like, are you getting something out of this? Or is yeah. it literally they're getting free labor and you're getting nothing? Like, yeah. or they keep like dangling the carrot, like, hey, we're going to, we're going to yeah. help you out. And then they never do. It's Payment like, at is what not point, always monetary. Yeah. Like, as, as at what point you're, do you do you have to realize like I'm getting nothing out of this like I'm wasting my time here mm-hmm. where I could be somewhere else maybe doing the same thing and maybe not in Montella getting paid but they're giving me something in exchange for my time and my energy yeah um, and I definitely want to go into that I got a question related to that but going from you know high school you went on tour and you got addicted to touring you're like this like I want to do more of this so you had another option you're touring 
And another option, as you're doing the touring life and things like that, another option morphed into a different band name, or yeah. the evolution of another option became War Games. Mm-hmm. So what caused that evolution? And if you could talk about, like, how long were you touring? Because when you became War Games, some pretty big things happened. But, like, what yeah. was that? Like, how long did you have to grind? And what did you have to go through to get to that point? And, like, why War Games? Why the evolution? Things like yeah. that. Because I think so, that's an important part of your history. Yeah, so War Games came around in 2012. So up until then, we're probably looking at five, six years of another option. And another option, we had we had actually, we had done UK tours, and that's what led me to drop out of college. Um, How'd and, you get the UK tour? Yeah, so like a-, uh, a friend of ours had a, an indie label, and he was interested in like trying to, into in trying to get American bands into the UK, which at the time and 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 I think always has sort of a thriving indie rock and rock and underground and alternative scene. Like I feel like England is uh, like in America, you put Top Forty Radio on and you hear the same like Taylor Swift songs. Where I feel like in the UK, you put Top Forty Radio on and you hear Taylor Swift, but then you also hear like like alternative bands that you would never hear on American radio. And there's a history of pirate radio or yeah. in the UK or like UK's like pop music or musical history of like taking bands or genres that in America weren't being appreciated. They're like, or did UK and Europe at large, like, yeah, Hey, we'll, we'll bring you over here. So was that kind of the case or was it like, Hey, we're doing good. And all of a sudden no, totally. the UK was like, I think hey, come I think, over here. I think this gentleman, this promoter and who owned this indie label was getting a little frustrated with like the scene, because I think this was probably around the time where, you know, CDs were being phased out and Napster was a thing. And like, you know, all of a sudden everybody in the industry was kind of scurrying to figure out, Hey, how do we monetize the music industry? You know, big labels were starting to crash and it was chaos. And I, I, I could be wrong, but maybe he looked at like going to the UK as, as a, as an, as a way to like, to be respected over here for doing such a, an, an to, for, for manifesting such an achievement, but also being able to t- tap into this market that just seems to, from the outside looking in, British folks and people of the United Kingdom just—I don't know. I mean, they really seem to—they really seem seem to enjoy music in a different way. So I'm not sure, but I mean, when when the opportunity arose for us to to be the band that he, this this indie label took over there, we definitely capitalized on it. And I had to quit. I was in—I mean, the only reason I was in NEIT was because I needed a high school diploma. <laughs> So you just need, you needed that certificate. You needed yeah, that yeah. Paper. So I got that, and 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 uh, it was right around the end of my freshman year of school. Well, when, when I was about to get my associates, that I, I, I just wasn't same thing. I wasn't into it. It was like high school. I'm like, I don't really want to be here. Like, you know, it, this is boring. Blah 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 blah. And I I want to be. I was hungry to be on the road and like making music full time. So I, I I talked to my mom and I said, Hey mom, I'm miserable. And I have this opportunity to go to the UK and do this tour. And um, she was like, sounds to me like this opportunity to tour in the UK might not ever present itself. Like this is a good opportunity. And, you know, school, they'll always be here and when happy. When you come to, back and do school, you may not be able exactly. to have to be able to do this. Yeah, so she was very supportive in that. And then I went to the UK. And that that was with another option. And we would do more UK tours after that, but I think what 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 made us go to War Games and, and it essentially was the same members, uh, for the most part. We just rebranded because we had named the band when we were kids. We had 
developed a reputation that was great, but also there was stuff that wasn't so great with it in terms of like, yeah, we put out some records where we barely knew how to play our instruments. You know what I mean? Uh, so for us, it was like, oh, wait, we get the opportunity to kind of rebrand and kind of um, clean off the slate and start from fresh um, and those, start from new. Those early records were you... Because I know you were learning video and audio production. We don't have to get too deep into it, but I just feel like this is going to come into the later part of our conversation. Were you recording that at somebody else's studio, at like a professional studio? Or were you yep. trying to do it like yourselves or? No, we, we, I mean, don't get me wrong. The first couple of records that I did as a kid, they were recorded by us. But um, after that, I, I, I soon quickly realized that this type of tech is extremely difficult. And if I want to sound, if I want to sound, if we want the band to be taken seriously when people listen to our music, then we're going to have to shell out the money to record in professional studios with professional engineers. And we did. We, we sold cars. We 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 took sh- shitty minimum wage jobs and saved up money and did everything that we could to record decent sounding recordings because that's kind of your product as an artist. And so, I mean, nowadays it's different. Like lo-fi is cool and indie is is more accepting of I was going to say what year was this when quality? you were like hey we have to I know it was before 2012 okay gotcha okay. Um, but we and we had actually as kids we saved up a bunch of money and went and worked with a um, a, a an artist that we like were we idolized so we, we we got it you know we were like yeah we're going to get we're going to work with this artist we're going to do co-writes we're going to do the studio stuff but basically I left college and, and went on that first UK tour which was awesome and then I got back and never went back to college. I was just like, I want to tour the UK more. And so we rebranded. And the year that we rebranded, we got an opportunity to play on Warp Tour, which I was, about was to great. Ask about that because like, that's a, that's a that's a big like Vans. What I don't know if it was called Vans Warp Tour at the time, but it eventually became Vans Warp Tour because like the branding and everything. Yeah, like, Warp Tour is like a it's got a name and a pedigree and a prestige and a history behind it. Like that's a major tour to be on. How did you how did you score that and was that like an oh shit moment where it was like, oh, this has become like we're on this this major tour now? Like, was no, was it was that, was it that was, a shock to the system because <clears> then you're going from like there was no shock or, because we had worked really hard to get on it. So after the first UK tour, we came back to the states, and um, the label, that small indie label that we were working with, they were like, hey, we want to do Warp Tour, and so we bought a van. A thousand? Uh, no, no, no. We had a bunch of vans at the time, but we uh, like throughout the years. But we 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 got a van. We drove to California, and we got on the tour. And basically, the indie label had a tent. And basically, we 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 won a competition to play Kevin Says Stage in Massachusetts. But the the indie label set up a tent and asked us to man that tent all summer long, selling records from releases from that indie label. Um, including our own. And we thought it was a great networking opportunity. We wanted to get our foot in the door. So we knew that we had to go out there and kind of grind and be at the very bottom to work our way up to potentially playing the tour. So it was, it, that, that was a shock when we toured, we set up a tour, we, we toured all the way to California. We got on the tour. I, I don't even think any of us had gone to California at this point. So um, and this was probably 2009, I think. You were saying you set up a tour. Like, what was, like, I can only imagine the logistics of like figuring that out and having to like call promoters, call clubs, call places ahead of time. Like, well, MySpace was it. a beautiful thing. And this was, this was right after MySpace, but MySpace really created this beautiful network where it was literally you messaged a band from, you looked at the map, and we were touring with maps when we first started. 
Uh, but we would look at a map, we would we would figure out a route, and then we would say, all right, well, these are the towns that we probably going to want to plan. Like, this is a college town. Like, this is a town. Like, we obviously don't want to plan literally the middle of nowhere. But we'd look at a map, we'd pick some towns, and then we would go on MySpace and look up bands from those towns. We would kind of creep them on MySpace to see what kind of followings they had, what kind of music they were making with their with their friends and and So you do a market research. Yeah, yeah. But through MySpace at first. And then that 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 quickly evolved into Facebook. But it was kind of the same thing. It was just kind of like it was it was it was it was message these bands. Maybe you'd message a hundred bands and five would get back to you. And then you would sort of network with these these bands like you would have conversations and have dialogue and set up these shows. Was everybody in the band doing that, or were you like the more entrepreneurial one and you took yeah, that on? Yeah, uh, that was me. That was me doing. So you're that. the one taking that on, and yeah, really I feel like, like everybody had together. their jobs and everybody had their specialties, but that particular thing was mine. And gotcha. I've booked tours since then. I've booked tours in the, the United Kingdom, so I've I've booked shows that were successful in the in the in other countries, um, and I and I really feel like. What it comes down to is like knowing the play a million bad shows and then you're gonna have like a set of red flags. You're gonna be like, well, why why did this show suck so much? Yeah, you know what I mean. So I just recognized the red flags and put in the work, which was having conversations with with band people. You can you can literally mitigate your risk if you talk about all the potential things that can go wrong and have this develop these relationships with the people that are booking these shows. The bad, and then it became the only bad shows we played were maybe the ones that something out, outside the realm of our control happened, or maybe it was like, ah, we just needed something a Tuesday on, and and you know in in the Midwest, like you got to play on a Tuesday night, but you know what I mean, like there's no avoiding a bad show on a Tuesday night. So was it through that touring grind? That you made the connections that led to the warp, the warp tour. Um, yeah, getting so on to when that? we got on warp tour, we slaved. We we it was we were driving ten, twelve hours a night, uh, getting three hours of sleep just to be at a tent all day, and we had to hustle. Like at first, it was tough. Like the first night, we didn't even make enough gas money to get to the next warp tour date. So, so wait, hold on, just because I I wanted to dispel like possibly dispel a myth because it's like because I feel like people might think like oh vans warp tour. And possibly even touring in the UK, like the person putting on the tour takes care of everything, right? And that does not seem like to be the case here. Well, when we that first year that we did Warp Tour, we didn't know nothing about it. So like we weren't even affiliated with Warp Tour. We basically got our foot in the door by working for a label. Which, and then that label was at had a tenant Warp Tour, and they're mm-hmm. like, "Hey, help us sell your record, but a bunch of other records." Exactly. Okay. Help us make enough money to get to the next date, and that's all it was about. It was okay. Completely utilitarian sort of but i think that's the thing i'm like i, I want to kind of dispel here is i think people like think that oh you're an artist on this tour it's glamorous you, when you're at the top but, but like you just have to show up and play because yeah. you're on the bill like you don't have to fork over any costs or you don't have to worry about that but that's that doesn't seem to be the case it's like no like we're part of this, this tour we get we get the co-sign but we're not getting funded <laughs> right like they're not yeah. funding you or anything well we like were that. i mean nobody kevin lyman or anybody involved in the tour didn't even know us like we were nobodies we were essentially employees of a company, and um, we used once we got the the hang of things and realized that we got to hustle our records. We actually got really good at hustling our records. And now, look, Warp Tour, even though we're only playing one day, it 
we looking at it as a beneficial investment of our time and effort and money because we're once we got good at it, we were selling hundreds of copies of our CDs a day over a sixty a two month month and a half long world a uh, full U.S. tour. Like if you're a band sitting at home playing local gigs, you're not selling a hundred records a day across the country. So the way you saw that the the tour or the way the tour worked for you wasn't like this moment of like I'm on this tour, Mama, I made it. I, like I don't have to do anything. Like no. I'm just getting I'm getting a, a nice I'm getting a nice fat check because I think that's what people think. They think it's like hey, just because you're on the bill, you're getting this nice fat check. And it's like, no, like really the people that are top tier are doing that. Everybody else has to grind. Yeah. But the flip side of that was, it's like, okay, we got to grind. We're not getting everything taken care of. Like we got to figure out, like we're getting the cosign, but that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. But now you were, it seems like you eventually figured out, okay, we're on this tour. How do we use this tour and the cosign as a tool yeah. to help our own ambitions? Like how do we flip Absolutely. it that this is like, how can we leverage this situation to benefit us? Yeah. And not only were we out there now having a platform and hustling a hundred CDs a day and getting our music heard all over the country, but we also had an opportunity to network with people in production and people who were at the top of the, the food chain. You know, uh, the beautiful thing about Warped Tour is it's like, sure, there's this hierarchy of the main stage artist and the side stage artist and the artists that are just there and, and trying to get their foot in the door, but at, at the end of the night, there's a barbecue. And at the barbecue, that hierarchy's thrown out the door. That you know, everybody's I mean? mingling with everybody. Everyone's mingling with everybody. So it gives you a chance to network yeah. and see. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. I mean, little John was uh, one night. He was like dishing up cocktails, and one night I'm drinking margaritas with the singer of um, the All American Rejects. It didn't matter if you were what level you were that, on. That separation went away. Yeah, and it was a beautiful opportunity to network because. We gained friendships with people who otherwise maybe would never, we would never be in the same circle as. And we, so there was a lot of benefits to being involved with the tour. And from like 2009 to 2012, 2012 was our first opportunity to play legitimately on the tour. And that was the year that we rebranded to War Games. So it was perfect timing. When you say legitimately, like the tour was now directly paying you a paycheck and you didn't have to worry about stuff or no. what was the difference? Cause you say legit, I just want to yeah. see what the, so the separation was. Prior to that, we were winning competitions and getting opportunities to play a stage here or there. Whereas in 2012, we got the opportunity to play 27 dates and it just, it just so happened that was, we rebranded to war games and we, we, we looked at all the things that didn't work and did work with another option. And we changed the name to something that we thought was a little bit more mature and we set up a business plan and rebranded. And um, actually, before we did the official rebrand, we already knew that we were getting on 27 Dates of Warp Tour. So we were able to launch the rebranding of the band, the, the new band War Games, with 27 Dates on the band's Warp Tour. Loving the Grind When Kyle was talking about his journey in the music industry, there were two things I noticed in our conversation. The first was that he wanted his life to be about music so much that he truly loved the grind. Even in the beginning, Kyle, with no expectation of getting paid, offered up his friends in his car as roadies for another band, which led to him going on the road. 
from there, he loved the grind of touring and playing shows, even when the venue or the promoter were not so great. He then took that knowledge of playing so many shows, both good and bad, and turned it into a love for the grind of booking and running shows on his own, both in the US and abroad. Finally, even when his band was able to be a part of Warp Tour, he developed a love for the hustle and grind of selling records and merch. Now the second thing I noticed was that throughout our entire conversation, Kyle never mentioned being in love with the superficial stuff that comes with being a successful musician. So take a lesson from Kyle. Avoid loving the stuff, the superficial, the destination, and instead develop a love for the work, the grind, the journey. With those 27 dates, did how you all worked and like the logistics and the business and how you got paid, like, did that change and how did that change? It did change. So I'm, I'm trying to keep these stories short because I've got lots of crazy stories, but like the way we got on the stage was basically another small indie label that we had been networking and met through Warped Tour out of New Jersey had hit us up and they were like, hey, we can, for listen. You give us a thousand bucks, we're gonna get you on four dates on this stage. And at this point, I'm like very eager to to rebrand and like sort of desperate to get on this tour that we had been we'd been working so hard on for so long. So I was like, sure. And they're like, all right, so it's some pay to play. It's pay to it was pay to play, but but that is actually against the rules at Warp Tour. Which I was, I was gonna say, like, how does Warp Tour feel about that? Because I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure that they're like, I didn't no, don't know, do that. I didn't know, but I, I said I didn't care. I said I'll do whatever it takes to get on that stage because I'm tired of busting my ass on this tour and watching bands around me get the break. And like I'm, no, were those I other bands it. getting the break because they were doing the pay to play thing? Like, no. like was Vans like officially? No. Okay, so it bands like were Vans. not paying to play. Bands never pay to play Warp Tour. It's a, it's 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 very much against the rule, and it's against what I imagine everything that Kevin Lyon stands for and when he started the tour. Gotcha. And I didn't know that at the time, so... But there was like a gray market shadow economy <laughs> going on, apparently. Yeah, so I got this opportunity, right? He, you know, he calls me up and, and I'm like, okay. So I get off the phone with him and I'm like, okay, at, at this age and considering our lifestyle, we are young kids, we're working at like Dunkin' Donuts and stuff because we're, we're touring most of the year. So we're just looking for jobs to hold us over to the next tour, you know? So we're living in a very unique way and we don't have money so a thousand dollars to me at that time it might as well have been ten thousand yeah, we, we gotta raise the funds somehow yeah so i i agreed to do it and just thinking that you know i gotta i gotta capitalize on this and like i'll find the money so i talked to the band and there was another company on warp tour that we had been befriending and networking with and created sort of a rapport with throughout the um time that we were out there like we would help them sell them st sell their stuff like we were just in networking mode like trying to do favors for people trying to be seen um anyway they were a much bigger company and they were they were very successful on warp tour and so i said you know what i i've kind of developed a relationship with these guys i'm gonna call them up they were from staten island new york and uh, i'm like i'm gonna call them up and i'm gonna ask them for a thousand dollars i'm gonna ask them for a loan I'm going to, you know what I mean? I'll tell them that we'll hustle the thousand dollars back for them on the tour. So I call them up. Hey, we got an opportunity to play. It's going to cost a thousand dollars. I'm just calling to see if maybe you would loan us a thousand dollars and we could pay you back throughout the tour. And the, the, the owner of the company on the phone, he goes, 
yeah, yeah, I like you guys. I like your music. We'll do that for you. But I'm a little concerned because this sounds a little shady. Uh, let me look into it first, and then I'll call you back. And so he calls me back the next day. He's like, he's like, and he and he drops the ball. He drops the info on me. He's like, yo, dude, that's a totally against the rules. And now I feel like a dick because I asked him, and I'm like, you know, shit, man. I didn't know that was this yeah, was now, a shady now, sort now, of now thing. Now you're just wondering, like, oh fuck, now what happens? Yeah, exactly. And he goes, so I did some research though, and I figured out what was going on. So basically. Uh, according to him at the time, he said that the, the the stages are sponsored by companies. Obviously, you know, Hurley stage, the Kia Soul stage, whatever it is, right? The company sponsored the stage. The company sponsoring pays a large fee to sponsor the stage because it's essentially a billboard. Um, and the, the company also gets to choose which artists to play on the stage. So it's actually like Kia Soul, who decides that Yellow Card is going to play on their stage. Probably because they're like, hey, we want a band that can either align or won't screw with what our brand stands for. Probably, probably. And so he goes, the na- the stage that you are going to potentially, that, you, you, that you're looking to play on is called the rstage.com stage. Was a company called rstage.com. And uh, they're the main sponsor of the stage, and then they also sell sponsorships for the stage that are not the main stage. So, like, if you the, the most expensive sponsorship of a stage allows you to name that stage after your company, the Kia Soul stage or the rstage.com stage. And then there's other smaller tiers of advertise uh, uh, of sponsorship for fifteen thousand dollars. You can be the next tier of sponsorship where you get the most branding on the stage and you get all these other sort of perks um, that allow you to advertise your business. And so he goes, what's, what I found out was you're, you're, the person who offered you this spot on four dates is going, is planning on purchasing the $15,000 sponsorship By of getting the stage. thousand... And then he was farming it out to other so bands. So this was almost like some pyramid scheme shit. Exactly. Like, like hey, like I'm gonna get you on the on this stage, you know, even though it's against the rules. And it's like, yes. Well, how are you gonna get this on stage? So he was like, he was so farming he, it out, so and, he, and, he, and he was gonna make a profit from so it. So basically, too. he's he's somehow, free advertisement and a profit. So basically, he somehow got that fifteen thousand dollar tier, even though he didn't hand the money over yet. Because I'm I'm thinking like not everything's cash cash on demand, like you can you know invoicing and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's like, hey, all right, Sunday, maybe he put up a little bit of money as collateral. And then he's like, all right, I'm gonna go to these bands that are struggling and mm-hmm. get them to do some pay to play. Not when not only that'll fund that when the time comes, like, hey, I got the money, or like, hey, give me a little bit, I gotta, I'm gonna get the money. And I'm going to make a nice little profit for myself off of it, too. Yeah, it, it was definitely shady. I, I just want to say this, too, though. I don't fault him. I don't think he was a bad person. I honestly think that he was trying to help artists. He was trying to help bands and get them on the platform um, by doing something that he didn't have enough money to do and that his company didn't have enough money to do. So although it was shady and it was against the rules, I just want to mention that I think his heart was in the right place. Um and, you know, it costs a lot of money to start your own company and have it be out on Warp Tour and be profitable while it's out on Warp Tour. And we all have the goals of sort of being the Kia Soul, being the, the big companies and the big brands and the big bands. And a lot of times when you're working really hard and you're hyper-focused on accomplishing something, you will do whatever it takes. You know, we were just as guilty as him in the, in the fact that, like, I, heard, I was offered it. I thought it was sketchy, but I said, fuck it. I'm going to go for it because I'm, I'm mama bird in this. I'm going to do anything for my band and my, my, my thing. You know what I mean? Whatever it takes. So I think this is actually, I was going to say this question for later, but 
since we're on the subject, I'll ask it now. And I think it's a good segue kind of like going into like the post war games life and like, yeah, the more but I also do have to, do. I have to, I have to tell you how we got the stage. Okay. Well, oh yeah. Yeah. Real quickly. Go into that and then I'll, I'll ask the question. Yeah, the yeah, real yeah. quickly. So he tells me that this, this shady thing going on and I'm like, Oh damn, sorry. And he, and I was like, sorry about that. And he was like, no worries. He was like, what I did find out is he hadn't paid the $15,000. So we paid the $15,000 and you guys are going to play all 25, all 27 dates. So when he says we paid the $15,000, his what? company ended up paying the $15,000 to sponsor the stage which gave them the ability to choose what bands that, because it really was supposed to be one band playing 27 dates. He was farming it out to other bands. So giving bands like four dates here, four dates there. So the guy that came up to you was, all right, so I just want to make sure I got this, got the situation. And the guy, the guy coming up to you hadn't paid the $15,000 no. yet. He then, was in the process of like uh, pay, paying, getting it, the bands, getting to the get bands the, together and, and trying mm-hmm. to pay it. So then the other person that you went to, just to remind me and remind everybody else again, that other person, though, was not the same as the first guy. So this other no. person, he had a separate business? Or? Yeah, he had a much more successful business. And so... And um, they were trying to get the same stage, I guess, and he just saw an opportunity? Or? No, no. So I, I called him up and asked him for the $1,000 to pay this first cat off. Oh, and, and he was he, like, and then he's like, something sounds weird about this. And, and then, then he, he did he his find, own investigation. He, he finds it out, and then he goes, well, shit, I've got a business that needs promoting. I exactly. need, I've got more than a thousand dollars. I'm just going to pay the 15,000. I'll get you and I'll do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which was beautiful because I went from feeling like a dick and to him being like, nah, I did the investig. I did my own little investigation. I found out what's going on here and I'm going to, not only am I going to pay the $15,000 sponsor the stage and choose you guys to be on the, t- on the 27 dates that the stage is existing on the tour, but I'm also going to invest another $15,000 into print- pressing your record and printing your merch. I was, so I was wondering like... $30,000 investment. Was he, was he already planning on doing that or was that like just on a whim? Because it was on like, a whim. It was on a whim. That, that is, that's luck. I was going to say that that's the stars aligning. That's, that's mm-hmm. not, I don't want to say luck, but that's mm-hmm. just like it was on things a whim, going your especially way. Especially because, you know, he invested $30,000 into war games. Um, they did the company, uh, but also they had a lot of expenses. Like they lived on buses while they were on the tour. They had a two tent spot, which was like a rent of five hundred dollars a day. Like they had a lot of the name of that expenses. company one more time. They were called at the time. They were called Self Made Co. Or but prior to they had rebranded from Selfless Murder to Self Made Co. And then would eventually things would happen eventually because of the tour. But basically, they took out a loan, essentially. It was a clothing company, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I came across this in my research. Is yes. that how you got involved with Selfmade Co? This will exactly. come into play later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's how, how I got involved, involved with them. With them okay. Because they invested, they took out some loans, uh, got some money, extra money together to put us on the tour. And I am forever, forever grateful of Joe Ionelli of Staten Island, the owner of Selfmade Co. And the 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 sacrifices that he made so that war games could play, um, and the things that he did for me. I think. Joe was a great friend of mine and he believed in me. Um, and you know, just being a really being out on the tour and working my ass off, like people saw us working our asses off, you know what I mean? And they had a respect for us. And we, we quickly deemed the nickname, the hardest working band in showbiz, you know? Um, so he saw how hard we worked and he said, you know what, if I invest $30,000 into these guys, I might see an ROI. Is self made co still around? No. So, uh, this is relevant this is very relevant to the story because he invests thirty thousand dollars into the band and the deal is we're going to use our tour van to help um bring some of his crew 
and get his some of his crew because the the bigger guys in the company were renting bus spots and the smaller guys in the company were basically getting a, a spot on our van to get to give venue to venue. And then also, kind of like almost what you did with when you got your exactly. first thing, where it was exactly. like, "Hey, I, I have I have some resources I could offer up mm-hmm. in exchange. I want mm-hmm. dot 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 real estate inside of our trailer. We didn't need to have gear because War Games had a back. I'm sorry, uh, Warp Tour had a back line of orange stuff because Orange sponsored the tour, and um, but we still carried a trailer around full of their stuff. They had they had uh, they had merchandising uh, in in a mac in a excuse me in a sixteen wheeler. 18-wheeler, rather. Um, they also rented spots off in the bus trailers, and then our whole trailer was their tents, their merchandise. So we had a little deal going on right there. And then also, two members of War Games would, would man the War Games tent, and two members of more War Games would actually sling and hustle self-made co merchandise under the self-made co tents. Did you end up getting like a co-owner gig or something with self-made co eventually? or So I... I started doing like PR and I started sinking my teeth into the company because I love, I, 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 cause they'd helped you out so much. They helped like, us out. And, and, and I wanted like to pro- help the them proximity out too. thing too. Exactly. Right? Okay. It was a, it was kind of like a, at that point we felt like sort of a family, you know what I mean? Like self-made co was helping fund war games and have us out there. And they printed beautiful merch and we had our records printed and they were doing so much for us. And I wanted to keep, I wanted to keep that going and I wanted to help them. And, 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 and I didn't want to go back to working at, Wendy's or Dunkin' Donuts or dishwashing when I got back from tour I wanted to remain very much in this world because I felt like that was more beneficial for me from a networking standpoint you know what I mean uh, if you're going into Wendy's working 40 hours a week or you're washing dishes for 40 hours a week you're not doing anything for your side hustle so for me it was like if I get involved with this company I get to live in this world and I get to I think living you know I get to make more connections that could be beneficial to my my side hustle. So I want to use this opportunity games. to ask that that question I was going to ask, and as op, uh, opportunity to pivot. So I wanted to ask because I was going to wait till later, but I think it it makes sense asking it now. When it comes to like the music industry and the music business in general, whether you're on the performing side, or you're on the you know the more logistical side, the more executive side, it seems like that. And I don't think it's just because it's a it's a industry where like creativity and and like art art is involved, but something about the music industry. And I want to get your take on this, where it's like regular business practices go out the window, or the idea of pay to play and interning for free, like things that would not hold up in other industries or even other creative industries, are like commonplace, or it's almost like, and then. On top of that, it seems like no one, I want to say no one, but not a lot of people are, have like the incentive to change that. Mm. Is that something you've experienced? Why, and if so, why do you think that is? I think, I think a lot of where the music industry is right now comes back to the moment the music industry fell, which was Napster, right? Before Napster, I feel like the format for the music industry was similar to Hollywood, Right. So, um, there's a lot of money pouring into the industry. There's a, there's tangible products being sold. There's a hierarchy. There's unfortunately people being, um, taken advantage of, um, pretty much like the music industry, in my opinion, was showbiz. Like every artist had to look good to get on MTV, 
to to be on the radio to whatever like you had to you had to the label had the the record labels were so powerful and they had so much say and um they had such a big hand in everything and then Napster came around and uh it took it took the tangible product out of the industry which was how the record labels were making the most money it took all the power from record labels it flipped the industry upside down and things changed so much to the point now where it's like you have to be super innovative and in, um, super creative and have endurance and the ability to get knocked down a million times and be able to get up. You have to have all these skills to even to live within the music industry now because it is, it is, it, it, it constantly, it's constantly had these moments where it, it goes from sort of being, um, structured and and being this well-oiled machine to getting flipped on its back and then being the wild west. So, so my my question about that though is because and I I want to hold on to the Napster thing because it leads to my next question. But just a quick sidebar: the pay-to-play and like things like payola and this like kind of like gray industry, shadow industry existed way before this kind of digital transformation of music um, happened. So just kind of dig a little deeper, like. Do you think that's just something ingrained in the history of the music industry? Because if you really go back, like the modern record industry was started by the mob. Yeah. And like the mob, yeah. like, so it is, it, is, it, is it just more like it that's ingrained and it's just like because it's so like a part of the DNA of it, it's very hard to like get away from that? Or I don't know. I don't even really know if it exists. Um, because like payola like was happening anymore. in the 50s and stuff like that. Like so n- yeah. maybe not payola the way we think about it back then is happening now, but there's like new versions of it. And it seems like the music industry more so than other industries, maybe Hollywood is the only other one I could think of where it's like that's fine because there's other creative industries where like you try and pull that shit like no like no one's going to work with you, but yeah. for some reason it seems like in the music industry, oh that's how the way things are done and that's fine. It's like why is there always new versions of that? Yeah. And well, I just didn't I, know how like if, like from your experience cuz you and we're going to get into this a little bit. You've been on both sides of the glass, so to speak. So yeah. I'm just wondering like, what your take on that was or like, why that is. Because I think that's something really interesting about the music industry specifically. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, in my opinion, you know, it, it being sort of this Hollywood showbiz type of um, environment and then being flipped on its back and turning into just decades now of Wild West we don't, you know, technology evolves so rapidly. I think we've, the music industry has really had a difficult time putting their finger on, you know, how exactly they're going to make their money. And, you know, things keep shifting and changing. So I, I, right now I think it's utter chaos. And I still think that it's utter chaos. I mean, it went from CDs to, to downloads, to streaming, to insert the next new technology. And I feel like I, I don't know that basically because it's the wild west in the wild west you climb the ranks and However asserted you your authority yeah it's it's just like it's like lawless yeah it's lawless and i feel like the, the music industry is still lawless to the point where it's just a new type of lawless like we went from the lawlessness of like the mob then payola then this and now like technology got yeah. thrown in the mix and now yes. it's just like the lawlessness has evolved but it never went away yeah it's, it's like just a it's like the mafia but but the but the but the big the bosses have been falling and yeah. it's, it's it's just chaos now. It's, it's a, like it's a power now. Grab. Who do we listen? It's, it's a power grab now. Absolutely, it's it's absolute chaos. And I just want to state that I think, I think blockchain technology solves this for the music industry. 
Just that wanted to, and that's that kind of a be, random no, note. No, I, I agree. That could be a whole other podcast, but I'm glad you're on this because two things. One, and this is from my days working in tech. One of the things I that I learned and one of the things that we were telling other other industries was like, hey, the you know, it was kind of like a buzz, like a buzzworthy catchphrase that we were told by marketing, but it was sort of true. Hey, digital transformation is going to happen. Like every every industry and every job's going to like going to undergo digital transformation. I think the pandemic kind of accelerated that even more. Yeah. But what I think is interesting is looking back with the power of hindsight and it's something I noticed because I went to school for I went to full sale and I noticed and I have another question about this later on about um how not even on the consumer side on the making of music side was changing. But looking back on that, I noticed. Oh, the music industry was the first in the first major industry, in my humble opinion, that went through the digital transformation. Yeah, like if to me, if you were smart, you should have seen what was happening in the music industry at the time and going, okay, maybe my industry won't have that exact thing happen. But like how that got rocked by technology, my industry is probably going to be rocked by technology. So like, how do I like learn from that? from that thing. So I think like the music industry was the first one, mm -hmm. the first like major industry to be affected by digital transformation. It's still affecting it now, but like the first one where you saw it in real time, yeah. like in recent history, this is not something we're reading about, like we're living through it. So with that being said, you then eventually, and we're going to talk about that too, is I guess like the second half, you did go into business for your, for yourself, mm -hmm. right? Was it because of the changes in the music industry and like Napster and like this disruption that caused you to go down a different path? Because I guess the question is what made it so that why, why wasn't it the, the romantic, like the romantic ideal of like, Hey, I'm in this band and we're going to make the band as best and we're going to live off of music and da da da. You're still in this band. You're still making some kind of income, but like that's not your main source and your mm. main source is now more on the, production side and uh, and like i think this is a good segue to talk with it what what led to that decision was it more of a decision that you made was it you saw you saw the tea leaves like you saw things coming down the road and you're like this isn't sustainable like what led to that decision well so i was grinding with with my band war games for about a decade and uh we were doing european tours uk tours full u.s tours we were we weren't we did the warp tour thing for six years um, <clears throat> we sort of sacrificed our financial livelihoods and our normal lives to chase the dream. And I was that type of person who just believed that if I worked harder than everybody around me and every, everybody that I knew that I could work, that hard work alone would get me where I wanted to be. And that didn't, that unfortunately didn't happen, um, for whatever reason, you know, maybe the music wasn't that great. What, you know, I, Whatever, whatever it was, it didn't happen. And then after being a band for ten years and, and sort of being in this, in the trenches with the band for so long and 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 putting all that stuff aside, people got tired of it. Like uh, we we got really stressed and tired of like constantly touring and constantly not knowing what I, the the. So it's just the grind in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, we got tired of it, and so the band went on hiatus or broke up, if you will. At that moment it was what defined me and it was it was very difficult what was your life it was my life and it was it was as if like i i just i lost everything that was associated that that defined me because like even i come home 
you were staying before, you wanted to stay in that world, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden that world you, yeah, that you was gone. Yeah, self wasn't a thing any longer. They they went out of business essentially. And I think <clears> you <throat> were doing merch for another another band as well, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm yeah. guessing that went away too. Yeah, motionless and white. There we go, motionless and white. And so that went out. So that all kind of like not just one aspect, like everything, like like that gone. And was that more of like. Well, just after a while, you just like were like, yeah. I can't sustain this, or like the band, like or I'm guessing other members in the band too, because it was probably yeah. a, a it was a per- it was a perfect storm of things, which le- led to a situation where I was coming home from tour, like I've always came home from tour, but this time there wasn't opportunities fresh in the ch- in the in the the works, and I was going to be home for a little bit, and the band was kind of breaking up and I came home and I was depressed. I was kind of upset. I was, I didn't really have this thing anymore that sort of defined me. And it was just like, I'd wake up, I'd go to the coffee shop and I'd bump into somebody and they'd be like, what are you doing, man? Like every, every time I, I thought you're touring and da da da. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and, and it was just kind of like these constant reminders that I'd failed and it was really depressing. And I was, it, it was a perfect storm because it, it came around the same time as like, you know, kind of like you, you know, you're becoming irrelevant and you're, you're kind of working, you're, you're, you're failing and you're very hungry. And, uh, to the point where like being hungry in, in the world and in, in, in business and in, in whatever you're trying to achieve is good, but there's a threshold that you pass where you're hungry for too long. And what, what you are is you're starving. And when you go from, I'm, a, I'm an artist who's hungry for success to an artist who's now starving, you start to kind of lose your mind. Especially when you got to taste it before. Exactly. And I, I actually drove down to a studio in New Jersey to work with somebody, an artist that I'd worked with through um, war games and who I really looked up to and idolized. And I told him that I was hungry. And he, he completely knew, for some reason, he like, he knew exactly where I was in my life because he said, Kyle, you're not hungry. You're starving. And starving isn't good. Because right now he's like, picture yourself like you're a coyote in the woods and you were hungry and that hunger was motivating you to sift out any opportunity to get something to eat. But now you're starving and you're actually working backwards. Like you're kind of losing your mind. You are not sharp. You don't have the ability to, to hunt anymore. You're, you're probably going to wander these woods until you die. And he looked me right in the eye, and this is somebody I grew up idolizing, and he said, it's time to, it's time to hang your hat and get like a different job. Or maybe be a studio musician, or maybe be a, try to get into somebody else's band. But you're starving. You ain't going to catch anything out in these like you woods. You need to make some... Who was that person's name? Ace Enders. He was in a band called The Early November, which is an emo band that, you know... Was that a hard truth to hear of somebody telling that you looked up to telling you like, hey, you have to switch it up now. You can't do the thing that you were doing yeah. before. It was as that moment. I'll never forget it. It was as, 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 as if he grabbed a knife and just stabbed me. Like it was not what I was prepared to hear. It was I was prepared to hear the 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 usual. Oh, you can make it. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you can the, keep doing it. Like, you can yeah, do keep, it. Keep Don't give up. This, pushing in this direction. But it was incredible. It was profound advice. I was not ready for it. It hurt. And I drove eight hours to South Jersey, showed him the songs that I wanted to work on with him. He listened to them. He gave me very knowledgeable critiques. And then he said, you don't look so good. And then we had this conversation, and this is where he kind of dropped these truths on me. And I said, okay. And then I got in my car, and I drove eight hours by myself home 
back to Massachusetts, just, just reiterating those lines in my head that he had said to me and thinking about it. And then I got home and I was depressed and I just felt like I was wandering the earth with, with, I just didn't know what the hell I was going to do, you know? And it was very tough because everybody around me knew me as this person. I had this thing that defined me, and and now I no longer was doing that. People didn't even know what to talk to me about. I think that's the maybe the danger of like when you, even outside creative, when you let your job define you. Yeah. Because then if that gets taken away, then it's like, what have I been doing? Who am I? Especially the longer you do it. And I think it's also maybe a perception thing too. And maybe you weren't looking at it like that then, but like you're still involved in music now, just in a different way. But you're still like living in the dream in the sense of like you're part of the like not the original world you you wanted to be in but you're still part of it it's just in yeah. a different way and but I think- it's coming around full circle man because i got back and the, the i remember the first job i got back was i hit up a buddy i was like yo i need a job and, and they got me a, a job uh delivering auto parts and i'll tell you working at an auto parts store and delivering auto parts is a terrible job because nobody ever walks into like um, an auto parts store in Happy. a good mood. Happy. Like yeah. something broke. Yeah, so it was incredibly depressing. You know, it was just, it was ran very, it was a mom and pop place. It was ran very old school, meaning like the managers and bosses, like their move was to instill fear into you and make you feel like you were worth nothing so that you would be an obedient employee. Kind of what they did in the 50s and 60s, but people kind of like aren't about that anymore. Now, like, the, the, the way to manage a business is to be motivating, give your employers stake in the company and, and give them a, a skin in the game and like, you know, which I think is great. And I think I'm glad that there's been a shift. But anyway, I kind of like went back a, a hundred years, got this job and uh, it was it was very depressing and, and, and it was very shitty and I wasn't going anywhere and I didn't, I was just kind of like this lifeless, depressed sort of person for uh, uh, years, kind of clawing at opportunities to get back into the music industry but what happened was a a good friend of mine i wouldn't even say a mentor of mine rich ferry who was a film person reached he was a fan of war games i i i had started working with him on a solo project because he had a studio on his free time and we developed a relationship um i I idolized this dude he he's he's so brilliant and he's so motivated and i was just like man this is such a great person i I just want to be around him all the time he's so motivated he's he's so great at like being a freelance person and he gave me the opportunity to get my foot in the freelance filming world and he basically and it was it was through weddings actually he was filming these really high-end weddings like I can tell you great stories about meeting the Clintons at weddings and like Gerard Butler and all the, these were super high end Newport weddings because we're obviously really close to Newport, which is a massive wedding industry. I was going to say for those that are outside of the Northeast and don't know Newport, Rhode Island, Newport was like way back in the day, the playground of like the elite, the ultra elite yeah. of America, like mansions upon mansions that have been used in movies. Um, but a lot of movie stars and music stars still like to go to and hang out in Newport, Rhode Island. So yeah, so having that proximity or being close enough to Newport. Okay, continue. Yeah, so, Just wanted to put that out there. So I get I I start doing. He starts teaching me how to use the new cameras, and he starts getting me to do tasks that are time consuming, like culling through hours of wedding footage, so that he can basically get. Uh, a, a final cut project that is all the best shots and he can kind of deliver his final product. So I'm kind of like an assistant in that sense. And I'm going to the weddings as a second shooter to get um, different types of B-roll footage. 
like I'm just dipping my toes like a like like an intern into the freelance world through this film stuff. But for me, it was really beneficial because I was honestly getting to spend time with somebody who I idolized and thought had it such a great had such control over his life and everything. And I was aspiring to be freelance, so I did that with him. I quit my nine to five and did that with him. And then wedding season was over, and he was like, "All right, I don't need you anymore." So that's when it's like, okay, then what? Yeah, and that's when I was like. I've had a taste of freelance. I am not going back to the nine to five auto parts gig. I am now going to, I'm going to start recording full time, artist full time. And that's when I started my grind at the studio and started that. Now, I have a question about that. So, during all this time, because you were learning how to do audio editing and video editing, in high school, you learned about more video editing. Were you still keeping the blades? sharp when it comes to audio editing there's probably still some stuff that like once you learn it you don't forget it or like did you have to like relearn and hone your skills all over again yeah i had to relearn and hone my skills all over again but also technology had evolved like and when i was in a lot yeah (laughs) yeah i I forgot which which version of cubase i was using in high school and then college i was using pro tools hd7 and at this point like the game technology was evolving so rapidly that I felt like it was it was it was new. I was in a lot of studios. I was on a lot of video shoots. Like I don't I don't feel disconnected so you were, from it. You were around it though yeah. too. You you may not have been doing it but you can like pick up certain things. And I yeah. want to ask about that later cuz I think that plays into another question but so but you didn't open up you know, we're, we're going to get there, folks. Don't worry. You didn't eventually open up, like, you eventually opened up your own studio. But you didn't start with that because you worked for, what, Surreal Universe and um, Level Exchange. Yes. Were those, like, the, the two things that kind of, like, got you back into the game as far as, like, So Surreal Universe work? was a home studio down the road from my house that a buddy of mine had started. And I started working there a little bit, but it didn't really go very far. Um, but I could see, I, I, I got to, I was very client facing. I wasn't very engineer facing in that world and I produced and, and whatnot. And it was pretty DIY, you know, I don't, it, we, we weren't making enough money to support ourselves by any means, but, um, level exchange is an interesting topic. So I mean, if you could briefly, cause I, I don't think level exchange is around anymore, at least not in the not, way. No. Okay. Can you briefly describe what level exchange was? It was, was? audio tree. And, and how you got into that and like what you did for them. Yeah, so I am working for Rich Ferry. I'm fresh working with Rich Ferry. So the way we started it was... And who's Rich Ferry? Rich Ferry is... I'm sorry, great. Uh, Rich Ferry is the, the gentleman, the buddy of mine who I started, who took me on as a, as a freelance video editor and, and shooting assistant. Um, and so he was very smart in realizing that like when you... Be, everyone becomes a freelance... Um, person or a 1099 typically because they want to they want to have control over their own schedule they want to be their own boss right that's the dream yep but then quickly you realize that like in in a pursuit to gain um freedom and control over your own schedule you you it's like you fit it you have well you have freedom (laughs) you have freedom but then it's like it's all on you you have nobody else to blame Mm -hmm. you can't blame your manager or the company it's like it's on you now. And if you're trying to start a niche art, a, a niche arts based business, 
it could be it could literally mean forfeiting your freedom and spending every waking moment of your life trying to get this thing up and running. Because now you can't just do the art anymore. Now you have to be like you're your own self made business owner. Exactly. So you have to run the business as so well. He real he realizes this right off the get go, and he starts to his move is to instill, which I think is a is great piece of advice for anybody who's new to freelance. He says. All right, so it, it's kind of silly because even though I've started doing freelance to gain freedom and, and control over my life, um, the best way to start in the freelance world is to take things from the old school formal way of doing business and apply them to the freelance world. So he says, guess what, Kyle? I know we're doing freelance uh, filming and everything, but you're going to work five days a week, nine to five. And I'm like, oh, like I'm used to, but it's it's silly because this is freelance. This is 1099 stuff. This is creative work. He goes, no, no, no. You're going to show up at my house at nine and we are going to edit side by side till five. We're going to grab lunch for an hour every day. It was just like working a normal job, but you know, that's the thing. Like you mentioned, when you start doing 1099 and you have all this control over your schedule, it becomes very difficult to keep yourself checked. Mm. And to get the work done that you need to get done. I, I, I mean, like, not spending an hour um, organizing um, folders in Google Drive or whatnot. Like, right. because you feel like you're being productive, but you're not actually producing. Yeah. And who's going who's gonna to have to answer for that lack of producing? You. Yeah. And you'll have to, you'll get a bad reputation. You'll let clients down, yada, yada, yada. So, anyway, I'm now going to his house nine to five. Um, I forgot what we were talking about. Oh, how did this? How did this get into level exchange? How did he this gets an email from uh, a, a girl who's, uh, I guess, freshly graduated from Bryant, I believe, University, and also what level exchange was too. So those two things. How did you get in yes. there? And what what yes. was it? So he gets an email from this girl. She's looking for an audio engineer. He he turns to me and he goes, "Hey, you know, at the end of wedding season, you're going to need a job because I won't have I won't have work for you." Do you want me to do you do you want me to give this girl your contact information? And at this point in my life, you know, I'm starting to do freelance, but I'm still hungry. I'm still depressed and confused and kind of like feeling like I don't uh I don't have any direction or I don't have anything to really live for, you know? I'm kind of just like clawing for every opportunity to to get a job that feels that makes me feel like I'm doing something creative or, or useful or whatnot, you know? Um, and so I said, yeah, sure. And so I, she emails me, we set up a meeting. It's great. She's a Bryant grad. She's got this hunger and I see an opportunity for me to get involved in a startup, a music based startup. And so that's what a level exchange was. So she facilitated investments. She hired a staff and she gets this music startup and what level exchange was is very similar to audio tree where basically there's a film team there's a beautiful space that she um facilitated investment and 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 had built um in Pawtucket near the guild and it's a beautiful they they build out this beautiful space I do remember and then it was gone and I was like wait what happened yeah it wasn't a lot around very long and um but yeah, so she facilitates this investment she gets the space built she hires a video team she hires an audio team we we purchase thousands of dollars worth of equipment and we start production and it's basically like audio tree bands are showing up from all over the Northeast. Um, and they're performing live, um, with like sophisticated audio equipment that I'm running and there's a film team filming and we're, we're, we're putting together this product of basically a, 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 a live concert. 
essentially. It's an end. It's an end to end shop, at least from the live concert, because it's like we have a venue, mm-hmm. we have an, a professional audio and video team, and so we can like you can take the recording and like probably make it into like a live concert, you know, album or whatever. Also, we got the video. You can use that for promo. Dot dot dot. So it's like we're an end to end service, basically. It yeah. seems like. Okay. Yeah. So the the concept was fantastic, and I and had had we have known that uh, a a mutated influenza pandemic was going to was going to change the way we all lived um had we had known that i mean this, this this sort of product and this sort of experience would have been fantastic for covid because it it did it digitized the concert experience you know um were they doing streaming at the time or no they weren't doing streaming um but we i, I could have seen that being a healthy evolution of the of yeah would have made of, sense yeah um but it was it was sort of YouTube based and it didn't last long unfortunately and like most startups it, it was it was just mismanaged you know I think a lot of a lot of companies are started up where the person who's kind of behind the 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 wheel is kind of out of touch with the demographic uh, or the audience that they're trying to sell to and things just don't get executed properly. Um, they get mismanaged to the point where the ship sinks. And that's what happened with that. So having that happen, and you were working there, how did you transition from that and seeing something being mismanaged to like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start my own studio. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. Uh, some of this is a little, I have to be a bit diplomatic and talk when I talk about this, because basically, in a nutshell, I think that, I think that company was sort of mismanaged um, even though the intentions were gold. Um, and while that ship is sinking, I befriend one of the investors of the project and, um, he can tell the ship's sinking. And I think he's looking for, he really did believe in the concept and he was, he was not ready to write it, write this sort of thing off as a failure. And he was sort of ambitious in trying to make it work. Uh, long story short, Essentially, he started. Inv- I I showed him my studio setup, which I don't know if people know, but basically I had no money when I came back from tour, and when I started a studio, I didn't have a space to start a studio. So at the the time, I think I was living in the city in Fall River. I didn't have a space where I could make noise. So my uncle, who's an RV tech. He was he was getting rid of a, a like a 1976 Jayco trailer that was complete. It was a mess. He was, it was going to the junkyard. It was it was full. It was uh, waterlogged and it was just it was ready for the junkyard. And he said, "Hey, I'm gonna throw this away. Would you want this for any reason?" My grandfather was actually like, "Before you throw that away, you should talk to Kyle because he might want to make something out of it." Because my grandfather was brilliant, and um, he shows me, and I'm like, "Yeah, actually," I, and so. I had constructed constructed a studio space out of a trailer, uh, a 35-foot-long trailer, with the intention of just creating a space for myself to make music, to be loud in. The, the trailer was kept in Westport, where I currently live, which is not the city. I was going to say, because, like, so you didn't bring it, like, the tra- I was going to say, you're probably, like, renting, I'm assuming, in Fall River. You can't just yes. bring a trailer onto, like, a parking exactly. lot or any old property. Yeah. So you were living in Fall River... So were you working on that? You were working on the trailer in what was it, Westport again? Was that yeah, yeah. So okay. my grandfather owns a piece of property in Westport, um, and it was 
off the beaten path. It wasn't, you know, the, it's acres of land. So it, keeping the trailer there, my grandfather has always been, was always so supportive of everything. He would come to my gigs, like everybody knew him. He was like, he's just an incredible person and he was incredibly supportive and, and just a, a music lover. And um, so he was absolutely a-okay with me having this trailer and making all sorts of noise in it. Because he had enough property that like it wouldn't really affect him i'm guessing yeah yeah okay. ex- exactly and um so yeah i i i built it with recycled materials because i literally had no all right everybody and that's it for this episode of the creative capital show but before we wrap up for today just in case you missed the full title of the episode or if you didn't see the cover art this is part one of a two-part episode so if you're wondering hey things ended abruptly or I must have missed the part where Kyle talks about running and operating railroad park recording company don't worry you didn't miss anything Kyle was just dropping so many gems during our conversation that to try and fit everything into a single episode would honestly be an injustice and uh, you know it wouldn't benefit you the listener as much as it would if you know, broken up into two episodes. So again, this is part one of two. You didn't miss anything. In part two, we're going to get into the story of Railroad Park and just all the trials and tribulations of running that business. So thank you for listening. And Kyle, thank you for doing this episode. And uh, for those that are listening, I hope that you come back for part two. Thank you. And with that, let's cue the music. The Creative Capital Show is hosted, recorded, edited, mixed, and produced by me, Jason Sylvia. You can listen to The Creative Capital Show over at our website, creativecapitalshow.com. We're also available on Anchor FM, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcast hosting platforms. If you like the show, please subscribe. Helps the show out a lot. And be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, and YouTube. I hope you enjoyed the show, and until next time, keep on creating.